Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Also Sport Podcast. We welcome recently crowned Formula E champion Jean-Éric Verne to review the remarkable 2017-18 season. While other championships are still either in full swing or enjoying their mid-season breaks, the 2017-18 Formula E season is long since done and dusted. And we're very pleased to welcome the recently crowned champion, Jean-Éric Verne, to look back on his and the Chichita team's remarkable season. Now, Jean-Éric, you've had a bit of time to reflect since that day in New York. How does it feel to be Formula E champion? Is it life-changing? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me here. It's always uh, nice to come in in the office. Um, We don't think that, but... Yeah, I mean, every time I came, it's because I want something, so it's it's a good thing for me. <laughs> um, how did I feel about it? Well, it, it felt great. Uh, obviously, uh, it's uh, it's a long time goal. Uh, you work very hard for a very you know long period of time to make that happen, and making it happen was uh, you know an achievement. Was uh, a great achievement in a, in a career and a life, and. Um, now it seems that it's already behind and I got next season now to think about and uh, to stress about. And uh, it's it's always good, you know, to have this in the pocket. But now it seems that, okay, it's it's won. I cannot win it anymore, but I can lose it and I have to redo it again. So... Yeah, that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? You've always got to uh, got to go again. Also joining me is Alex Kalanorkas, Autosports Formula E correspondent. Any doubts in your mind that we're sitting here with a very worthy champion? I think we are here with an absolutely worthy champion. And uh, as we'll get on to later, possibly a contender for the number one spot in Autosport's top 10 Formula E driver rankings for the season. <laughs> that's that nice. It's going to set up a really good argument when you, <laughs> when you find out you're 11th. <laughs> That's always what we tell the drivers if they don't make the top ten. We say, "Oh, you were you were just outside an 11th. Well, I have got an honourable mem- honourable mentions category, but uh, that'll go but you know, you know what? Uh, talking about that, I was. It, it's funny because at the beginning of the year, I was thinking, I want to have the top spot of uh, the the autosport, uh, the autosport award. You know, the ranking of the drivers. I was thinking the best thing to do is try and win everything. So this year, you know, I won Formula E, hundred uh, percent of my races in LMP2, except the one of Le Mans that. We may have back in September if we win the appeal. And if we win the appeal, I think 
I cannot do more, you know, to be on the top spot. Oh, so you're going for top 50, number one? Sorry? You're going for absolute end of the year, top 50, number one? That would be, no, it's okay. possible, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, a good, it's good that you had that target in mind yeah. when you started at the beginning of the year. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, be nice. you'll probably be higher than 51st at the very least, that's a... Yeah, better than less, yeah, at, uh, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a challenge when you get to sorting that. You realise how many drivers have excelled during year, so it's always, always closely fought. But let, let's get back to Formula E. Four wins and 12 races, never outside the top 10 at the end of a race. It's been pretty close to a, to a perfect season in terms of putting together a championship assault in such a competitive championship. You're never going to win 12 out of 12, after all. No, especially in this uh, championship where everybody have, at the end of the day, more or less the same car. Uh, especially in qualifying where everybody can compete for pole position because we all have the same amount of, of energy. It's not like the difference between a Mercedes, Renault, Ferrari and Honda engine where there is a lot of horsepower in, on one qualifying lap. In Formula E, it's 200 kilowatts uh, and it's exactly the same for everybody else. So qualifying is very, very tough. And then in the race, I guess some cars um, are able to make a bit more of a difference. Like we saw the Audi this year was always flying during the race. Um, and um, that's why it's impossible to win all 12 races. It's it's uh, it's not a doable thing in Formula E. Now, Alex, just to put a little bit of context into, into this, in any championship when everyone's good days tend to be at a similar level, but the thing that really st- stood out this year about about January is the the lack of bad days almost or the way that what could have, could have been should have been bad days were turned around I know Zurich and New York are ones you you picked out as kind of charges through the order that seems to me to signify kind of a, an all-round performing driver who can't just win from the front but can salvage something from the back as well absolutely and it, it almost seemed to be that it was that classic motorsport cliche if you win the title on your off days um there seemed to be one or two where maybe you were a little bit subdued maybe maybe Rome would be an example of that but am I right in that you you hurt your your wrist or your hand at that race was that a yeah my worst race was Rome um yeah I hurt a lot my uh, my wrist I mean my finger and uh, in the left corners I couldn't turn and the sector one and two was kind of fine I was very similar to uh to the time of pole position but sector three where everything was very tiny you needed to to turn very quickly the steering wheel and uh, it was narrow and, and and bumpy and you need to take the curbstones i was losing like five to seven tenths in in that only sector so yeah it was a very hard weekend for me but you know it's it's as you say it was a bad day but at the end of the day what really matters is that you're always going to have bad days in the in the season it's impossible that it goes you know pink every races and the sky is blue no problem no mistakes you're always gonna have bad things happening and and Rome was a bad thing happening and the most important was to score as many points as I could so I finished fifth uh, which was um, not the result that you want coming to a race but looking at everything when I left the track I was happy because I said there was nothing more I could have I could have done and the same is some of the races like Hong Kong race one um, I had some blank in, in, in the dash I had all the wrong information for the first race of the season I had no idea if I was going to finish the race uh, where I was and and it was quite uh, quite difficult Mexico also I had some problem of uh, of radio actually <laughs> the very beginning of the season uh, and until the, the middle of it I probably didn't have a radio I always had a radio problem with the team that was because it happened in Santiago as well there's a problem with your energy happened in, yeah. in Santiago happened in Mexico Mexico I didn't have a, a dash it was black dash no radio nothing and did they give you a reason why that had happened or just yeah it was always like one component that was failing and we needed to change it and the race after it was another one <laughs> so it was a bit frustrating looking at the shape of the season it does seem that the, the Marrakesh test was kind of a turning point in terms of really understanding how to get the best out of the car particularly over a race distance is that fair do you think what was learned there you were really able to carry into the rest of the season well i'll tell you what you know we are the only private team um and the fact that we haven't done uh, 15 days testing before the season really that was the, the the most difficult part because we had suspensions on the car in marrakesh that we had no idea were failing and uh, we don't really have time to make a lot of testing between fp1 and fp2 so uh, we made some changes on the car we had one day so we've done a lot of things and and we figured out that we had a, a, a actual technical problem on the car that we could have carried on the whole season because we would have never had the time to find it and um, so finding this thing already helped us a lot 
um, in having a normal car to drive. And, uh, yeah, obviously the, the drivers did a good job, uh, with, uh, with the team to, you know, bring us the right feedback and, uh, help us increase the knowledge about Formula E and about this car and uh, how we can, uh, improve, uh, some things. And is it right that, I mean, how much does simulation play a role? Because I know specifically I spoke to Mark Preston in, in Punta de Leicester and he said that coming off the back of all those things going wrong with your dash and your radio, that you'd spent time in the simulator, simulating every possible scenario uh, so that you and the team especially knew how to adapt. So was that, was that a sort of a key role in, in how the season developed? Well, I'd say it's a little bit like going to, uh, to an exam at school uh, where you don't walk very well or you only walk one special subject. If this subject comes to the exam, you know, you're happy, you know what to write, you know what to do. But let's say something else comes and you didn't work out before, you didn't learn anything, you're going to be very stressed, you're going to make a bad job and uh, you're going to fail. It's a little bit the same thing coming to the races. Uh, we do our, our homework and, uh, yeah, we know more or less many scenarios and uh, we come on the racetrack being very uh, relaxed about what we have to do. You mentioned the fact that Tachita is a, a non-works team. You have a customer supplier, the, the Renault power unit. Given how much talk there is about manufacturers pouring in, investing hugely, how big an achievement is it for a, a, a privateer team, effectively, to have, have won the championship and won it so so comfortably? Uh, well, unfortunately, we didn't win the the, the manufacturer championship. Sure, but the one everyone, only, the only one everyone talks by, about is yeah, always yeah, the Yeah, I know, but only losing it by two points was... Uh, yeah, I was very, very disappointed, but uh, nevertheless, I think what we've done was um, out of this world, really. It was uh, a massive success to to be there in the championship and, and to be able to, to fight with all those big guys, uh, fight, I mean, beat Renault, which was, uh, we were client of, of that manufacturer. It was something quite impressive, uh, given the fact that Renault won uh, the, the first three uh, championship in Formula E. Um, I think that's something that everybody can take credit in the team, the engineers, the mechanics, because it was really, at the end of the day, uh, a teamwork that made uh, that made that pay. What do you think it says about Formula E, the fact that a, a team in that situation can, can I think win? I think that's a fantastic opportunity for Alejandro Agag to, to tell off about the big manufacturers that are coming and are pushing to spend more and more money, because at the end of the day, now you can say, look, there is Tichita, the smallest team, no budget, and they're able to win and fight you guys. So instead of asking me to spend more money, <laughs> spend it wisely and, and try to beat the small teams before talking about bringing a lot of things in Formula E and making it very, uh, very expensive. Because the um, one of the good things about this championship is that all teams can compete now and uh, the budget are quite low compared to Formula 1. And uh, the day that the regulation leaves the room open for... Uh, a lot of improvement from the manufacturer side. For example, you can start doing the aerodynamic, you can start doing your own battery, then the budget will go up the roof. One team or two teams will start winning absolutely everything and, and then the interest will go low. And and um, I think that makes the championship quite successful in a way that everybody is on the same base and a small team like us can win. And, and obviously, you've talked up what the team's done and quite rightly so, but it's also... It's it's kind of more than a team for you, isn't it? You're not just a driver for the team. You've been embedded in that project. You're kind of you're kind of really part of it. How important has has that been to have that connection with the team and really be able to help shape it so it works for you and make sure you've got the right relationship for both sides to thrive? Well, I think it helped me massively. That's probably the the biggest step I've made in my career was to be for once on the other side of the barrier and with the team uh, management and trying to build a. Uh, to build up a team, trying to, to bring sponsors, trying to bring a manufacturer. And um, having been part of that process really helped me understand what the team really wanted from a driver and, and how um, the drivers were seen, really, and, and what we can really bring to the team and how we can bring it. Um, when can we push the team? When do we have to be nice with the team? When can we be pissed off with the team, etc., etc.? And I guess that helped me a lot in in just becoming a better driver. And uh, and now with the experience I have, um, I mean, it, it's a priceless experience that I that I have with this team. Mm. And going on part of that, when we spoke in New York, you, you mentioned how you'd uh, you'd gone to Andre Lotterer, your teammate, and you'd said, "Look, this is this is everything I know about Formula E. I'm going to try and help you get up to speed." Um, and he went from a bit of a disastrous start in Hong Kong, uh, retiring in Marrakesh. Then he was right with you, actually pushing you in Santiago. So um, 
you know, was that part of the process? Was that part of the process in that you saw this is what it takes? I need my teammate to be strong, to push me, to push the team so that we can achieve the end result. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to take too much credit, but I don't think many drivers would have done what I've done. Um, And at the end of the day, if you go in any teams, I'm pretty sure you're going to find the best work atmosphere in our team because there is absolutely no animosity with my teammates. We are very good friends. He's very talented and I respect him a lot You know, for everything he's done in his career. We are not in the same age either. Uh, we don't have the same goals within our career. Um, so it makes you know the compatibility. You cannot make it any better. And uh, and the, the fact that I pushed him to be up to speed very quickly helped us as a team to improve, uh, to improve things uh, and uh, and push further away our development. And it, it seemed to pay off on track as well because he mentioned that in the early stages in Paris when you were leading ahead of Sam Birds and, and Andre was third, he was pushing Sam hard and hard. So, you know, give him, uh, you know, give him something to think about as you were trying to escape at the front. And then we saw in New York when you guys, you'd have the software issue in qualifying. That's why you're at the back of the grid. Uh, you, you, you took the, 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 the classic Formula E tactic of not taking the start to save energy. So Andre went ahead overtake all these guys you followed him through and then he let you back past so you know it was a it really was a good team spirit there yeah, it was a good team spirit and it was a good strategy that we had and uh i really thank him for that and i guess uh you know it's it's teamwork and at the end of the day in motorsport i always got teach that you need to kill your teammates in order to to be successful and when you always have this mentality you don't really you start not enjoying so much motorsport anymore because you only think about you know, hiding your stuff about beating him and, and, uh, it starts to be, you lose the focus of what really matters in motorsport. And, uh, having it this way, this season with, uh, with Andre, which I already had a little bit last year with uh, Stefan Sarrazin, uh, really helped me to enjoy a lot more what I was doing and made me just feel better in myself and, uh, and better also with the team and all the engineers being happy to work together. Um, no fights whatsoever. Um, so yeah, it was very positive to for us to be walking this way. When it comes to to mastering the art of completing a Formula E race, it, it's a long process, isn't it? Because when you first came in, you were quick straight away on pole in Punta del Este, but energy management was always a bit of a ah, Punta a was fine. I could have win the race, but the suspension failed. Well, yeah, they, no, after it got one. more complicated. Yes, I agree <laughs> with you. But, but you know the. Uh, we hear from a lot of drivers who come in and maybe they underestimate the challenge of that side of things. And obviously it took you time, but that, now you've got to the point where, you know, you're winning races without dash information and you and you know, well, okay, we'll save energy off the start, we'll drop behind. So you, you've kind of gone from uh, not quite knowing how to do that to being an absolute master of it. How how difficult is it to, to do that? And when you look back on where you were at the start of your Formula E career, how much do you look back and think, wow, I, I knew nothing about this then and compared to now? Yeah, I actually I'll say that it's um, um, a quality that I I, I, acquired, I acquired, uh, which is completely different than being a racing driver. You need to be not a mathematician, but a little bit like a chase player. You need to be able to get something eaten and taken away in order to strike back stronger, and that's something a mentality that I absolutely did not have in the past. And uh, well, it changed me so much. Like a lot of hard work, obviously, in understanding everything, but then mentality of racing is is not the same either and um, that was a switch that was very hard for me to make you know to slow down and sometimes let people buy or not overtake when I could it's something that you know was not clicking in my mind it, it was just not possible and uh, yeah, I think it was a lot of hard work and uh, different mentality and different thinking I'd say I mean Alex did you see that throughout the season in terms of the way John Eric was, was approaching things because we see a lot of people being very up and down and sometimes that's down to the machinery but it was the consistency that really really showed and that that just seems to be the key to success in Formula E there's there's lots of very fast drivers out there but to be able to string it together consistently and throughout races oh completely and I think the only I say the only uh, as, as I wrote in, in in the magazine report or the sort of season review the only real major down note was qualifying in Zurich where you ended up uh, starting 17th and it did seem it did seem you know, you were always there and in the fight. It wasn't like uh, like last year where you were were sort of battling to get that breakthrough win. It was it was a it was a campaign because you know I joined the series halfway through. Uh, we had a different correspondent at the, at the beginning, and when I arrived, you were already up there in the title fight. But you still had Felix Rosenquist, you had Sam Bird around. But you there was no there was no drop off. There was no sort of really weak tracks that you guys had. So 
my, my question, and and you know, I've been thinking about this, is is as you say, Ed, in such a hyper competitive series with lots of random elements, how did you achieve that consistency? By not taking care of what the other were doing, or as simply as that, as you know, my my thinking when I arrive to to a racetrack is what I want to achieve is not to win a race, is to leave the weekend without having any regrets. So if I have the best car and I don't win, I'm going to have regrets. If I don't have the best car and I have problems, like, for example, New York, I got disqualified for, for a problem. Well, you know, it's part of the game and it's part of the process and I got to do the best uh, with what I have in my hand. Um, so by doing this, allow me to only focus on myself and, and with what we had to do with my team and not care so much about the rest. How difficult is it to get to the point of being able to do that? Because what you say is it is clearly kind of the key to success in any sport, just focusing on what you're doing and doing it to the best of your ability. If you go to a race and the best you can possibly be is six, then you're six and you don't throw it away chasing fifth, which you can't achieve or something. But how difficult is it to actually get into that mindset? Because it, it sounds very simple, but I've seen plenty well, of drivers who really was, struggle. Believe me, it was a... Uh, I don't know how to, do, how to say, but it was a... Uh, like crossing the desert for me for a few years and uh i guess that i was able to stand back up again after a, a very down period um allows me to have a lot more confidence in myself and where my values are and um you know to take things a little bit easier also so yeah i don't really know i don't i don't have the magical formula to for this but you know i'm not the only one like many drivers are, are like this and uh it's just a question of how you put it in in uh, practical mode. I guess age and experience is part of that as well. You, it helps to have that that. Yeah, no, ex- absolutely experience and um, and confidence. Yeah, you need to be confident to arrive on the race and and uh, be happy with a fifth position. Like it wasn't the case at all when I was in F one. Okay, I only finished six as the best result, but uh, it, yeah, it's hard, you know, to be content with what you have. It's something that was seemed to be mission impossible for me. And looking at the the season as a whole, when you look at your opponents, who did you kind of consider your your main opposition? For the big chunk of the season, it seemed Sam Bird was the biggest challenger. Obviously, he slipped to third in the championship because uh, Lucas Degrassi had had a strong finish. But th- did you ever really feel that there was one driver that was was standing out as your as your biggest challenger, or are you not? too worried about that no not really i was i wasn't too worried about that and as you can see like second third and fourth finished quite close to to each other and i was like more than 50 points ahead so no i didn't think okay sam was quite close to me at some point and uh and zurich i guess i got unlucky got lucky but you know at the end of the year all the lucky moments it's you know kind of levels up but yeah it was a bit closer to me i had a, a big advantage and then uh Obviously, you always need to have uh, one bad guy to look at, uh, one uh, one person you really want to beat, especially when it comes down to either you or him will win the championship. So, yeah, of course, Sam was the, the, the closest one and uh, in terms of competition also because I know he's very good. He clearly didn't have uh, the best car and uh, he's always able to put out an amazing lap time with with this car that uh, not many other drivers can do so even in in practice when you see the ds struggling uh i knew that he would always do something good in in qualifying sometimes sometimes it was not working but uh he had to fight hard to uh to be where he was and he's done a good very good season i think it would be fair to say that the audi was the probably the best overall package yeah, so by far by far yeah Absolutely. We saw what happened at the beginning of the season. Their reliability problems ultimately really cost them, particularly Lucas. Uh, and then they, they ended up beating you guys in the team's championship. So I, I wonder, you know, what was it like when you were on track and you were starting in a sort of a similar place to those guys and then they just seemed to go forwards when other people were sort of off the gas? Because they, was it purely efficiency where they had the advantage? Uh, yeah, efficiency. Um, I believe, you know, they were lifting just a little bit later uh, than us, um, probably recovering more energy in some places that we could not. Um, I don't really know, you know, I, as I say, we, we got a power train from Renault. There is things we can do. There are things that we cannot do. We cannot improve the efficiency of a power train with us being just the, the, the client of, of, of that engine. So, yeah, just had to live with it, basically. 
And what, what I noticed was that I think there were the two sort of standout drives for me. I mean, I know you had very excellent attacking drives in Zurich and in New York, but it was your drives in Punta del Este and in that final race in New York where you were at the front in Punta, you started on pole um, throughout a little bit lucky in qualifying because you'd hit the wall and then everyone else got thrown out. So that's why you ended up starting at the front. But you, you absolutely controlled that. You had Degrassi, who's not won a race. He's, he's not been on the podium yet. He's absolutely, he knows he's got the best car and he wants that win, but you didn't, you didn't break down. There was no, there was no mistakes. You just put the car exactly where you needed to and you did that again in New York. Actually, there was a, I, I don't know if it was my best race, but it was a race where I had the biggest gain in terms of confidence after it because Honestly, at the start, I was thinking, okay, I'm I'm gonna try and make a good start, and and then I'm pretty sure Lucas will pass me, and I will never see him again, and uh, I would be content with second position. So, when I started the race, I was not thinking I'm gonna win that race. This race is for me. This was mine, like it was the case in Paris. Uh, here it was, yeah, just trying to survive. And after a few laps, I saw that I was surviving, that I could handle the energy pretty well. And when I had the first energy number from my engineer, I was like, ah, so now I can make it. So it was yeah very difficult because one tiny mistake uh, and I would have lost it and it was always very close to me sometimes touching. Um, it was it was a it was a fun fight. And was is there a nice symmetry because everyone points out to you oh you, you you put it on pole in your first race in Ponce de Leicester and then uh, energy went a bit wild and then as you say the suspension failed in the end. Was there something nice to have sort of come the full distance to show that complete uh, uh, you know. Um, complete racing no, I didn't think about it really I didn't think about it what was nice is actually to have had this race in Zurich because everybody was saying that I can defend that uh, I'm a horrible driver to, to overtake etc etc your teammate might have been worse yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah I think he's it's, it's got he's got the palm on that one <laughs> um, as Sam Bird in Paris <laughs> or Lucas <laughs> um, no the Zurich race it was like um I, w- I really had fun. Like I honestly did not overtake that many cars during the season because I, luckily I was already starting in front. So, you know, it's it's a nice problem to have. Uh, but the charge in Zurich was um, I, I honestly I had so much fun in that race. Obviously, I was very angry with the car not starting, losing ten seconds, and then losing twenty seconds. That's at the car swap for the yeah yeah, and and then losing a lot of time with the the penalty uh, drive through penalty, still finishing in the points. Um, you know, when you make the, it's always easy after, you know, to, to, to make a race with if, uh, but you remove the 10 seconds that I lost and the driver change and, um, and then the, the drive through penalty, I was fighting with Lucas for the win. And have you, have you, cause we, we chatted in New York, obviously following on from that race about why you ended up 17th, but it didn't seem to be that there was a sort of conclusive answer, but have you, do you know why that happened now? Uh, well, with the team, we made some, um, not calculation, but um, we figured out that during the last two years of Formula E in qualifying group one, the first driver that was doing the first lap, his average position for the start was 17th. So I don't know if it's a coincidence or whatever, but the fact is in the, in the first two corners, I felt very poor grip. Uh, I saw on my dash that I was losing already like two, three tenths compared to my lap in 180 kilowatts. So normally in qualifying, you're supposed to go quicker. And I guess um, yeah, I had absolutely no confidence in the rest of the lap and sliding a lot. And uh, yeah, I, the lap I didn't make any mistake. It was just a very poor grip and, uh, and nothing I could really do. So you won't be going out first next time then? No, I mean, that's actually going to be a, <laughs> so a changing huge, next no, year, but that's going to be a huge fight next year. Actually, yeah. it's always going to be the same. Like look at New York. I passed qualifying one second before the check red flag. And the uh, qualifying went well, but uh, next year is gonna, always going to be like that now. And was there a, li- was there a little bit of uh, mind games from Lucas there? Because he was, be- I don't know if you saw it, he was backing up the pack or pe- appeared to be backing up the pack and you crossed the line just as the checker flag came out. Yeah, I guess next year we're going to have a lot of problems in qualifying because it's always going to be the first five in, in group one and um, everybody's going to be playing games next uh, next season. It would be, uh, I think qualifying is going to be a real nightmare and hopefully Formula E can find out, I mean, can sort this out because everybody will be waiting and um, at some point, if one driver plays a mind game and, and screw everyone's behind him uh, in order to be the only one to be doing one lap and the other one cannot because there will be the check will flag, I think the FIA and Formula E will have to find something because this problem will happen 100% true. 
Uh, one thing that was mentioned there was the the car changes, uh, which is obviously something unique to Formula E. There is a, a disadvantage for the taller drivers uh, in terms of doing that, uh, especially when you're up against someone like Sam Bird, who's about knee high to most people. Uh, I mean, I mean, how did you find that that challenge of the driver change? Do you feel you're at a disadvantage? And it did have capacity seconds to go wrong because I think the hand injury you mentioned was that a driver change? Well, practice? I had two hand injuries. I had one in New York, so it was a bit. Uh was a bit a little bit less uh, less painful but uh honestly this uh driver change i'm so glad that we don't have it anymore <laughs> i understand you know it was kind of fun for the show but at the end of the day people that don't watch motorsport they don't understand why do you need two cars to make one race so obviously formula a did it for the right reason for for budget reason we could have had a you know gen 2 car probably a little bit earlier but would have cost so much money for the other teams uh, that it would have been bad so you know, I'm glad now we have this new generation uh, of Formula E and, and that we don't have this driver change anymore because that really is something I was not enjoying. And honestly, I tell you, the, the, the stress you were having in the last lap, in the in-lap for, for the first hint about to change the car, it was so stressful. Like, it was... Um, I, I mean, that was fun, but... Uh, uh. Yeah, too, too much stress <laughs> on got, this one. It got sort of needlessly controversial as well because they removed the minimum pit stop time. Was it at ahead of Santiago um, or, or Marrakesh? Anyway, around around about the Santiago, beginning of the season, yeah. and you know, it just it just seemed to have been making a competition out of something that didn't need it. You know, it, it just enhanced the you know the, the and it was bad for safety hurt. because many drivers were not belted properly. I mean, they were, they were not attached properly and. Uh, and uh, I think it was in Punta Deste, Daniel Abt uh, had to stop because his yep. belt was not belted properly. PK a couple of times that happened. So imagine that happened, but there is a crash on the out lap and you don't have your belts. What are you going to do? It's a very bad thing. Could have been grim. But obviously, so gone, we've, been lucky, we've been lucky nothing has happened. Nothing bad has happened, but uh, it was probably an, an unnecessary risk. And also, we should we should mention this year, well, as you alluded to earlier, the, the, the non-FE activities you've you've been out in an LMP2 car you've had tremendous success there I think at one stage you had a run of was it four consecutive weekends yeah. you're out in the car which was a, a pretty big run of success have you enjoyed switching between cars yeah I love it I mean you know I'm I'm passionate and I guess I've found back some some more passion lately about motorsport and about driving and um, I love what I do so if I can race uh in in a good environment in the good cars and good teams that's something i love and especially fighting for wins is something that uh you're craving for you know it, it creates excitement it creates uh adrenaline and and uh you're always constantly looking for that so um, yeah having formula e and lmp2 uh, was something quite nice i didn't have any problems to jump from one car to another um you know it just keep me in uh in shape if i can say <laughs> I mean, we should also mention, I think there's a certain part of the, the motorsport fan base that massively underestimates Formula E because the cars aren't, aren't the quickest. They're not slow, but they're not the quickest. People assume they're somehow easy to drive. You know, right, let's see what Felipe Massa says next. Yeah, well, about that's, it. that's exactly <laughs> it, isn't it? But how, how challenging pointless is it? Pointless sport. That's what, that's what they always say on Twitter. Oh, Formula E, pointless sport. Oh, well, there we go. There we go. We're wrong on all counts. <laughs> Lack of understanding. But how difficult is it, especially when you're running on these tight street circuits with little margin for error and not very much practice, it must be hugely, hugely challenging. It is very challenging because, I mean, yeah, people are right. We don't have the fastest car. We don't have the car with most grip. We barely don't have any IO downforce. The tires are tires that are made for the road, basically, that you can drive in slick condition or a rain condition. That actually, I have to say, in the rain in New York, they were pretty amazing, those tires. So much grip, unbelievable. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, we have a car that is very heavy, a lot of torque, thanks to the electric powertrain. Uh, very little grip, the track very, being very bumpy, walls absolutely everywhere, braking capacity being very poor. I tell you, it is very hard to drive this car. Like It's a lot more difficult to drive a Formula, Formula E car to its limit uh, compared to a Formula 1 car. And one mistake, and you're in the wall. I mean, you mentioned Felipe Massa and how he'll get on. Do you think there's a risk someone like Felipe will underestimate the challenge? And I guess, did you underestimate the challenge when you when you first came in? Yeah, I did und- und- underestimate it, but uh, I have no idea about Felipe. You know, he's had a fantastic career in, uh, in Formula One, one of the best 
driver in, in Formula One history and uh, you know it, it definitely wrote the history of, of his sport so having him coming in Formula E is, is an amazing thing and I'm sure you know he's a very professional driver and uh, probably more professional than what I used to be when I came to Formula E so I'm pretty sure he will uh, take it seriously and uh, yeah I, I think it should be up to speed quite quickly. Uh, well, we'll come back to next season in Formula E in a bit, but it'd be good as well to look back earlier to the Formula One days. I think you've alluded a little bit to a, a few of the things you've you've learned since then. Obviously, you've made some comments recently about the relationship with Red Bull, kind of the the breakdown of trust and and you Formula. How how do you look back on that Formula One opportunity? Obviously, you had three years, twenty twelve to twenty fourteen, with Toro Rosso. You didn't get the the promotion into the the Red Bull A team on two occasions, and then obviously Formula E was where you ended up. Uh, to, to go down this path. So, how do you look back on on what happened there? Perhaps with the the greater perspective you've you've got. Well, there? I have a yeah, definitely a greater perspective. And if anything, I think I'm uh, thankful to everything that has happened. Um, I learned a lot from my mistakes, from uh, hard things that happened to me, without any <clears throat> justif- justification. Um, and um, I have to say, you know, without Red Bull. I wouldn't have had a career because my parents are not that rich. Uh, I don't have, a, you know, very rich family or very wealthy friends that can sponsor me. So I was very lucky to have sponsor to have uh, to have Red Bull as a sponsor from my early days in uh, in in single seater. And thanks to them, I came to Formula One. It did not happen the way I wanted to. Um, although I had more points than Daniel Ricciardo in the first year, more or less the same in the second year, and, and then things went downhill from, uh, you know, went south from that moment. Um, but at the end of the day, I ended up in, in, in the best place I've ever been in my career right now today. And, um, I don't think, yeah, you can always come back and say, change the past. And maybe I could be with Daniel fighting with, uh, I don't know, fighting for a world championship in the best Formula One car, uh, earning millions and millions, but whatever, that's not the point. The point is today I'm very happy where I am and um, thankful to everything that happened because today I have a lot more experience um, and uh, I think I'm a, not only a better driver, but a better person with uh, a different uh, perspective. Obviously, I was, I was covering Formula One at that time, so I covered your time. I always found you a to be honest, a frustrating driver because I could see how quick you were. There was no question about the speed, but the the consistency. I know in Toro, so it's always going to be up and down. But relative to your teammate, the qualifying performances were always concerning because there often seemed to be the pace was there in the weekend, and then it didn't quite come together on on Saturdays. And I think Red Bull felt a, a kind of a similar thing. And I just wonder whether it was just down to not dealing as well as you would now with the with the pressure of it, etc. Do you think that's is that a fair no, no, it's a fair, it's a fair comment. I mean, there was always the speed. Um, and, um, compared to Kvyat, for example, in, in the last year of Toro also, qualifying was good, but you would expect that I would have been in more, but I had uh, 10 kilos extra compared to him. That mm. Toro also didn't want me to talk about it back then. So. Yeah, Toro also never liked drivers to talk about anything, do they? That's, yeah, yeah. That's so. A strange team in that regard. I had like, depending on the track, between two to four tenths disadvantage compared to him that I had to basically shut up about it and not say anything. So it was highly frustrating for me. You know, it was like everybody uh, is against me and, and uh, definitely put me in the wrong state of mind. And it was the most frustrating year of, of my career. Yeah, definitely. So what you saw from the outside was exactly how I was. And it is difficult because like you say, there were the kind of two times when Red Bull passed you over the first one with Ricardo seems to be more understandable should we should we say whereas the Kvyat one I get the impression you're looking at and thinking still don't quite understand why that happened is that is that fair yeah I today I don't understand no absolutely not um but there is no point for me now to try and understand you know it's it's done I don't even know where it is at the, at the moment I'm and uh I'm very happy where I am so yeah <laughs> No point for me to try and understand. But it does seem so important in terms of where you are as a driver now, the lessons you've learned from that, the way you've you've kind of evolved. Because like you say, there's disadvantages to the way Formula One works, but it's a very intensive test of a driver, isn't it? You learn a huge amount. And I think there's no doubt if you jumped into a Formula One team now, you would be much more consistent that, that you would perform under pressure. You would be a different driver to the one you were you were then. But it, so it's played a part in in making you 
this all-conquering Formula E driver. Yeah, no, that's why. That's what I, you know. I said earlier. I'm thankful to everything that has happened to me in Formula One, bad and good, because today it made me a much better driver, a much better person, and uh, understanding a lot more about the world of motorsport, and also, and most importantly, appreciating a lot more what I'm doing, which I did not really back then in in Formula One. So, yeah, you asked me earlier. I'm just thankful to everything that's, uh, that has happened. I'll just ask you one more question on this topic. Not going to be too boring about it, but it's a it's an interesting one. Christian Horner said that uh, recently said that when the Weber seat became available for for twenty fourteen, so it was you versus Daniel Ricciardo. That at that stage, when that became available, they felt it was kind of sixty forty in in your favour initially. Daniel had a difficult time. You'd had a couple of superb races at Monaco and Canada, if memory serves. And then in the couple of races that followed, things didn't quite come together. Yeah, for you. I think things change quite fast in motorsport, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> but you know what. Again, from the outside, you can say, "Well, is that is that the pressure? Is that the the outside, the knowledge that so much was at stake, making it difficult for you just to concentrate on what you're doing?" I think Silverstone was the first race, wasn't it? If memory serves, again, you were quick, but I think you had a there's a quick, a slight off in qualifying on one of the key laps. Of the, I can't remember if that was a gust of wind or something. That just a few things went against. Tire exploding. Uh, was that in qualifying? No, that was in the race. Yeah, in the race, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it but I was in the points. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but you know, when you look at just that that specific phase. Do you think it was just misfortune that the things didn't go for you at that point, or was it again something? Was there something you could have done better in that? No, it's only I, there two was, or three races, really. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there was definitely something I could have done better. I mean, I, if I would come back right now to, with who I am, uh, definitely things will turn uh, turn out in, in a completely different way. But uh, uh, I don't, I don't really know to be honest. It just uh, it happens and. Uh, the sure thing is that he still has my number and if he was 60-40 compared to Daniel Ricciardo and that I lost him today, you know, he can call me and, and see what we can do. <laughs> well, there'd be many, many worse choices given the, the driver you've, you've become. Well, let, let's sort of look back to what to what you are now. Looking at, uh, at the future before we go, come into the Formula E future, it's going to be very different. What Where do you see yourself as a driver now? You've You've got this foot in sports car racing as well, so while it's not perhaps quite as attractive a, a path as it was a few years ago when there were so many works teams, where do you see the future? Do you see yourself as a Formula E driver who dabbles in sports cars when they can? Or do you think that might be a, a future path for you? Or is it just do as much racing as you can and take what opportunities there are? You know, as I said, like, it's very funny. Um, like two years ago, Formula One was something that would have never opened its doors anymore to me. And, and, and today it kind of, not completely open, but some, I'm talking to some teams and, uh, and things are starting to move, uh, uh, to move a little bit. Obviously, with, uh, Daniel going to Ono, it checks completely the driver's market and, uh, to have some teams that are calling me to know what I'm going to do next. So it's feels already like, oh, I still exist for Formula One. So it's kind of nice. But uh, what would be very nice would be to have a proper chance in F1 and, uh, and uh yeah i got some unfinished business there and i guess with everything that i've learned lately um how much i improved i think it would be a completely different story so so events sort of have changed your perspective because when we spoke in new york you mentioned about how you wanted to be seen to be working well with andre to be doing well with g drive in lmp2 and winning le mans to get on the radar of a top lmp1 team yeah, but at the moment there is no lmp1 teams there is toyota and there is nothing else to be done in here so i think uh, the aco uh, we need is to to change that and you know they have a new regulation coming up and there needs to be more lmp1 team coming because right now nobody's watching lmp1 it's Toyota versus Toyota. So what's the point in, in going to um, to a car, to a race, if you know you cannot win? And it's forbidden to win, actually. That's the worst thing. The regulation makes it forbidden to win against Toyota. I don't understand it. But so F1 is a possibility for next year. Do you, I mean, also, are you encouraged by the way that Red Bull went back to Brendan Hartley, for example? No, I'm not encouraged by that. Uh, I say that I talked to a team but was not Red Bull. And, um, uh, yeah, it's a possibility. I don't know. Obviously, um, I wouldn't like to go back in, in a team where I wouldn't have the chance to, to prove myself, uh, because you know how it works. Uh, I have a certain level of popularity. I go to a team that cannot score any points after one year. Everything that I work hard for to get where I am will disappear in one year. So, I mean, maybe not one year, but, I don't want to put all the hard work that I succeeded to um, 
into risking it to go back to Formula One in a team that could not give me a car to to fight for good position. I don't know if that makes sense, given the fact. I mean, understanding what I have at the moment. So, so it's about if you were to go back into Formula One, it would be as a as a kind of paid professional driver in a car that you knew you could at least well, do, uh, first do a of all, I never paid in. to drive in F one, so that's a good thing. <laughs> well, ex- exactly. But you know, some drivers they sort of they'll sacrifice everything to go into a a poor situation in Formula no, One no, just to I do mean, it. But no, you're you know you're not. you're sort of saying that I'm here, and if there's a credible opportunity to do it properly, yeah, you, you'd look at it. And- I was willing to do that because back then, when you're a young driver, you're not a credible opportunity for a Formula One team to take you. It's a risk for them because they don't know how you're going to perform. They don't know how you're going to handle the stress. They don't know anything, basically, because Formula One is way different than Formula 3 or F2 or any other younger categories. Today, I'm 28. I've made a, you know, my career has been difficult up and down, but today I think I, I achieved a lot of things and I proved that I changed a lot. That's the main thing. Uh, to I think a better version. Otherwise, I, I would not have won this year. Uh, so not only that, I would need a credible opportunity to go back in F1. But I, I think and I hope to believe that I became a credible opportunity for a team uh, to choose me. I'll probably say you're too old now at 28, even though you'd have a good <laughs> good decade still. But, that, but that's the funny uh, thing, no, isn't I it? Don't, I don't think so. You know, for, I mean that's. This world of Formula One is so funny. When you see uh, Romain Grosjean that left F1 and came back uh, with Renault uh, or Lotus a few years later when he was doing sports car and, and nobody knew where he was anymore, it's like things change so fast in F1 that uh, it can really surprise you sometimes. Well, all you can do is is show what you can do, which you have done. So, yeah, I think there's there's no question if you're plugged into an F1 car, you, yeah, do, if you do a good job. Yeah, if the opportunity comes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But but for now, the future is Formula E. Yep, Big absolutely. changes for next season. To Cheetah, switching to DS, uh, so you will actually be be the, the works team there. So that's a big change. The Gen 2 cars, big change. So it's a season of... A huge transition. I guess you'd almost rather things were the things were not changing, even though you'd have to keep the car swaps, seeing as you're on top. But you know, this big reset is is going to be huge and, and probably bigger for your team than most others because of uh, because of the change of powertrain. Um, yes and no. I, as you say, there are a lot of changes, and uh, the fact that we partner with DS is the best thing that could happen to us. Um, it's, I mean the. Now that I walked a few days with them and doing testing, I just came back from testing uh, this morning. Uh, it's a team of fantastic people, and our team, combined with this team, makes like a team that I, I could not believe how quickly they were going to get to work together and and have a good atmosphere. And uh, it's already uh, I'm already you know happy to go testing with those people. And who wants to go test in the middle of nowhere and uh, you know being alone on the track? And actually, uh, you know, I'm happy to go there. We work very well. Uh, all together and uh, I can't wait uh, the season to get started and and see where we stand because obviously we may think that we're doing the best job we can now but coming to the first race we're going to be very far away from the Audi or from Nissan or I don't know or maybe we might be the best by far uh, we never know in testing uh, the only thing that we can do is is focus on ourselves right now work and we're very happy with everything we're doing so far how do the cars compare to the previous generations in terms of what they're like to drive? They're, they're quicker, aren't they, for starters? But in terms of the, the balance, the way you drive them, is it, does it feel like a, the same family of cars or is it, is there a big change? Uh, it feels a bit, um, it, I don't know. It looks like a bit more like a Formula 3 car in terms of steering wheel effort and, uh, and, um, I think the car is a little bit nicer to drive now. Braking is better with the bike by wire system that we have. Um, the power makes it quite nice. Now, uh, 250 kilowatts in the middle of the world in Paris or so Hong Kong is going to be a, a big moment. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a bit scary, I think. And, um, um, no, it's nice, nice evolution of, uh, Gen 1, uh, Formula E. And Alex, the other change next year is the, I think it's Hyperboost, is it currently called? Perhaps you could explain hey, that. I think the see. biggest change that there is for next season is the race format. Mm, it's, exactly. It's not a number of laps anymore. It's, 45, it's minutes. forty-five minutes, and that makes, <laughs> believe me, so much complication in the race uh, strategy. It's going to be uh, uh, very, very challenging for all the teams, the drivers, and uh, that's going to be uh, uh, quite fun. I think in the first races because you might see only one driver finishing the race, and uh, the other one not finishing the race because they won't have energy anymore. 
completely and, and Sebastian Rumi alluded to this uh, in the on the press conferences in New York in the fact that you could get like you know do do you do you do you spend all your energy as the clock is ticking down to hope that you cross the line in time or do you do you hold back for that you know for that for, for that so that you don't have to do an extra two laps potentially like it's going to be all sorts of considerations um as you alluded to there it, is, it was a temporarily called hyperboost i think i'm not sure the exact precise name but i think attack mode is where we're sort of looking now uh which in terms of uh, using the different power modes and stuff like that and we as we know they're going to be going offline and it's uh to use the the favorite phrase of alejandro gag it's uh, like mario kart style racing um I've always been, my, my point of view is that Formula E had to do something. You know, the worst thing that it could have is to have, you know, whoever qualifies on pole racing off into the distance. I'm sure you may feel different if that was you on pole. Um, but, you know, I, I like that. I like that, that, that they've done something to vary it up. And, well, you know, they've done another thing. And uh, from what I heard, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But now when you got a full course yellow, it's going to be some sort of safety car where all the cars will be joined together. Okay, so they're going to form up like uh, like yep. the snake in Formula One sort of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and we know that the halos are going to flash if they if that's what. Yeah, that, was, that should be cool. But uh, no, a lot of things change, and uh, I think Alejandro likes to have things unpredictable, and next year is going to be highly unpredictable. Uh, well, that is a good point, is it about the the race length and the the calculations going on and the strategy and whether you force the pace or or don't force the pace. Is are you already at a point where where you feel there's kind of a default strategy? emerging because obviously people do simulations and try and work out what happens is always the unexpected but do you do you have a feel for how these races are playing out or there's so many variables now no, there are no so many variables at the moment that i have no idea how it can go like you the thing that you know is you need to um i don't know how to say calc you need to set up your strategy to the leader because it's the leader that is going to give the last lap or no last lap depending on the 45 minutes if you're the leader that changes if you ever take to take the lead that's going to change the strategy for everybody else behind. If you're going to push, that's going to change again the strategy for everybody else behind. Uh, if you've got a, a safety car, it's going to change a lot. And the only thing I'm worried about is that if you've got a long safety car, the race would be flat out to the end of the race. And we saw in New York, when you have a flat out race, it doesn't matter how slow is the car in front of you, you cannot overtake. It's impossible to overtake. Uh, so I hope that in case of safety car or like a, a full course yellow lasting quite long I don't know if they are allowed to extend those 45 minutes plus one lap instead of saying plus one lap they say plus two laps or plus three laps uh, because that would make things very I mean not interested at all like you got a, a very long safety car in the first five laps and then the rest of the race is flat out without anybody overtaking it's going to be looking bad on TV I think <laughs> And I think I think I'm right in saying that there's going to be a full sort of test of the race format in in winter testing. So they're going to try and iron out everything because what they don't want to happen is the classic Formula One uh, example of introducing something and then it not working and they're making a, a you know a knee jerk reaction sort of thing. Yeah, but I think if they do it, they need to do two or three race simulation, one with nothing happened. And I'm pretty sure in winter testing they're going to be they're not going to be driver crashing into the <laughs> others. Uh, and oh, then no, it, it has happened in Formula E simulation races. I suppose that was just before your time. There was, uh, oh, yeah, I wasn't there. I think it was with Bohemian. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Was, yeah. There, was an, there was there was an incident. I think there was some confusion <laughs> over over how you returned to the pits at the end of it, which led to a car sort of basically parts of the track that got collected by them. <laughs> and uh, another race simulation where they put a, a safety car for five laps at the beginning of the race and see how that plays out. Well, that's how you gather real-world data, isn't it, and get an understanding of, of of what happens. I mean, in general, when you look at Formula E, are you thinking, yeah, Formula E that people always talk about, it's the future, et cetera, et cetera. It's very easy to have slogans about it. But what do you think of where Formula E is now and what does it need to do in the future to kind of grow and, and stay a really important championship and still be around here in 15 years' time? Well, I am... Um I'm not the CEO of that company. I'm just a driver and I don't take any decisions. But so far, from, you know, where I'm seated, I can see the growth of the championship improving and it hasn't stopped in, in increasing so far. So it's normal to see it becoming better and better because there is no point where you say, mm, that's not going to go anymore. You got Mercedes coming, you got Porsche coming, uh, you got new cities coming for a very uh, long deal. The deal that Formula E made with Riyadh, I think no deals has been done like this in Formula One. 
Um, so it's it's pretty impressive. Um, the thing that I would be worried from where I'm, I'm seated is that some big teams would like to spend a lot more money, twice, three times more money that uh, uh, the other teams are spending and that they start winning everything because of that. I think that's the danger of Formula E that... Uh, um, Alejandro, or, you know, the CEO of, of Formula E needs to, um, be in a strong position and not let one team drive the championship like it is in F1. And if that team is DS, that manufacturer is DS, putting all the money in. It's not going to be DS. I mean, you're going to have Porsche in front of you, Mercedes in front of you. Uh, I know the budget we have. <laughs> I don't think we can compete with Mercedes in terms of that. On track, I'm pretty sure we're going to be, uh, uh, fighting quite uh, quite well with those people but uh, no you know you have to be realistic it's very important that not one or two constructors you know detect what they want because they are the one with a lot of money and just finally is that is there any way to have any clue what's going to happen next season in terms of who are the favourites Alex do you have any any feeling um, yeah as I've sort of as I've written in our season review coming out this week also Sport Magazine um, Audi is the benchmark at the moment though you know they they should have they really should have won I I think uh, both both titles if you look at the points difference the amount that Lucas lost and then the way he came back it's a, a huge open goal missed there for Audi um but at the same time the car that you're going to be driving next year with the DS and with Nissan as well they they elected not to develop their powertrains for season 4 so they're going to be coming with a big step so it really is it's that classic um that classic we we'll have to wait and see cliche really but uh, it's going to be great it's going to be you know unpredictable well this it much will. changes yeah it will well so come on then let's have a let's have a quick look at your top 10 and see uh see if our our illustrious guest achieves with uh, agrees with your ranking shall we say okay well i think i think he's going to agree with number one so i'm just getting the uh the proofs from autosport magazine out of the way what is it so this is the autosport's top 10 formula e drivers of season four so that's based upon performance relative to machinery expectations etc okay uh so yeah congratulations runner at Vern, number one yeah, thanks. I'm sure that's just capped your season, hasn't it? Until you had that, it wasn't really. <laughs> that's complete. all I wanted. <laughs> well, this this is a silver medal, and we now know you're aiming for top for the top fifty number one coming in December. So no, top ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should add, he wants no to be on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so number two, I went for Sam Bird purely on the basis of he outperformed machinery that he had. I think that it'd be fair to say that the Virgin DS package wasn't the strongest, uh, certainly not compared to the Audi and, and that you guys did with Tachita. So that's, that's why he got the nod there. Uh, I'm sure a man who will feel very aggrieved with that will be the man in third place, Lucas Degrassi. Um, another season, it could have been completely different, uh, but he, you know, he, in terms of what, what did go really well for him was that run of form from Punta de Leicester to the end of the season. He wasn't off the podium and that was, that was mightily impressive. Uh, number four, we went for Felix Rosenquist, um, who I've said uh, still Formula E's most exciting driver. Do you agree with that? In what way? In terms of just the way he approaches his racing. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's gripping. Yeah? He's a bit wild. I don't know. <laughs> I should add there's an expression that says that he doesn't think he's the most exciting driver. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, number five was Daniel Apt. Uh, again, continued the massive uh, step up that we saw in season three, um, led the Audi charge when Degrassi couldn't in terms of uh, uh, reliability, um, won two races. I think he improved a lot compared to last year. It's been impressive, you know, the step he's made. Mm-hmm. Quite good. In fact, his team boss said that he was the standout of the season. So operating there uh, again another driver that I imagine probably won't agree with, with his ranking with me here uh, number six is Sebastian Boemi um, there are a few occasions where it didn't seem you know we, we did see that the, the, the Renault powertrain wasn't developed this season so that you know that sort of held him back but then you guys had exactly the same uh, powertrain equipment there and, and took that to the driver's title and then nearly the team's title there are a couple occasions in qualifying where it just looked like he was either not trying too hard or at some stage not trying hard enough in the uh, I spoke to Jean-Paul Drier and he said there's particularly taking Rome as an example he was worried about messing up the lap and people were criticising him for that. And then that's what... that He ended up not getting through to the Super Bowl because of that, because he was worried about the potential for it to go wrong. Uh, and then, you know, little, little niggling things. There was a crash in Punta del Este, et cetera. But he's still absolutely rapid. And as we saw at the very end of the year, you mentioned the New York, the qualifying was wet. For me, that was the single lap of the season from what I saw, was that where he put it on pole for that uh, for the second race. Um, 
it was just you know just tremendous stuff tremendous stuff there um, there was only 200 of a second in front of me <laughs> so you ne- okay so you need 2000 in front of uh, andre well that can be the uh it was very very close it they can the be closest, the second and third laps of the it season, was the then. closest top three of the of the season in terms of qualifying pace uh rain is the leveler there we go um so seventh went to Oliver Turvey. Uh, I've said again, he's he's one of the most underrated drivers in Formula E. He really, really impressed me. I think it would be fair to say that uh, Neo isn't one of the top top end squads just in terms of, of the results that they've got. And he's consistently up there. You know, you look at his qualifying form, that's the basis on him getting, you know, the highest ranking, uh, a higher ranking there was, was purely the, his speed that he showed in qualifying. Um, number eight is your teammate, Andre Lotterer. Um, what a transformation from, from the, from the disappointment of Hong Kong all the way through the season. And I said that he was, he was really unlucky to end his rookie season without a win because I felt they deserve one just, just for purely on pace. Um, coming towards the end of the top 10, we've got Mitch Evans uh, from Jaguar, led the charge there, um, you know, blew away Nelson Pico, who's season one champion. He, he, he looked very much like he was, he was leading the Jaguar team. Very impressive stuff there. Again, another guy unlucky not to win a race in terms of the sort of the speed and the quality that he showed. Uh, and then for my number 10 choice, I couldn't really separate a number of drivers. So, I sort of, I looked at the finishing positions in the championship and the real standout performances that each one of them had had. And in the end, I settled for number 10 on Eduardo Mortara. Now he missed a few rounds because he ended up, uh, he had clashing commitments in the DTM. Uh, so his, his championship position could have been a little bit better. He could have got a few more points. Um, but he very, very nearly won his second race, uh, which was in Hong Kong. Uh, unfortunately, and this slightly undermines my point, but I, I stand by it. Uh, he was leading the race uh, all the way through after Rosenquist made the mistake at turn one. Uh, and then he spun right at the very end. He said, oh, it's a problem with the regen sort of uh, on the radio. Um, so yeah, so didn't get the, the the rookie win that would have sort of capped it all. But I still thought that in terms of a high point, his high point was higher than uh, uh, Maro Engo and Nick Heidfeld, who were the other guys in contention for that top 10 spot. So, Jeff, what do you, do you agree with that assessment? Mate, you're the journalist here and you're doing a better job than I could. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> Excellent. Good. The thing is, you can't disagree High with phrase. some of the other positions without putting question marks over number one. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always it's always an interesting exercise. Oh, actually, I don't. Yeah, number one. Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's always interesting to to go through the process of trying to do that and try and understand what people's seasons have really been like. And it's always difficult from the outside to really understand the, the different circumstances at play. But you sort of uh, a lot of effort goes into those, and hopefully they're not too completely out of the way although I'm sure some of those who didn't make the top 10 would disagree strongly but we have an honourable member honourable mentions uh, category online so that I can you know hedge my bets and that's, uh, just, that's just a uh, cop out cop out yeah fine <laughs> got to <laughs> uh, so, so say someone who didn't make it into the top 10 I can still say oh but this guy's ah, really yeah, good as well yeah. you know yeah, yeah. just to keep just to keep on side with yeah them. the coward's way out obviously yeah <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, I think we've taken up enough of your time, Johnny. Thanks very much for your insight on the welcome. season, on the past, on the future. It's been it's been really good to hear from you, and uh, all the best for what's going to be a, a very uh, I was going to say a big year, but a big a big season starting in uh, in December. It all gets going again. Lots of testing and, and work to be done before then. And I uh, hope you uh, stay at the sharp end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, yeah, I see you guys in December in Riyadh, but uh, shortly before. Yeah, never stopping. So thanks very much to Jean-Éric Verne and to Alex Kalanorkas for their insight on goings-on in Formula E. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please head to autosport.com for all the latest news and updates on what's going on in the world of motorsport. Everything from Formula 1 to Formula E to World Rally Championship to World Endurance Championship is covered there in depth. Also check out our subs plus subscriber area where you can pay for all sorts of in-depth features from our our star-named journalists and writers. Autosport Magazine out every Thursday. The, the current issue that's available will have Alex's Formula E season review with the aforementioned top 10 if you'd like to have a look at that. And please check out Sister Titles F1 Racing Magazine out monthly and motorsport.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please head to iTunes or your podcast provider and give us a review. And if you didn't enjoy it, you can give us a negative review. That is, of course, your prerogative. And uh, tell your friends about it. Share us on social media. We always like people being told about the Autosport podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.